Welcome to the Top of the Pile podcast, where you'll find some of the most interesting authors in conversation about everything from their lives, their books, and their big ideas. From health, science, and true crime, to fiction, history, and romance, we'll bring you fascinating conversations about subjects you never even knew about, and some that you do. You can also get more bookish recommendations by subscribing to the Top of the Pile newsletter. Just visit simonandschuster.com.au to join our mailing list. Now, sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversation. I'm Annabelle Pandiella from Simon & Schuster, and today we're talking to the wickedly funny and smart Joel Creasy. Joel Creasy is one of Australia's most popular stand-up comedians, performing to sell-out crowds around the country. He made his first stage appearance at 15 and his first solo tour at 19. This earned him Best Newcomer at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Joel has also appeared on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, won Comedian of the Year at the GQ Men of the Year Awards, and opened for Joan Rivers in New York. His book Thirsty is acerbically funny and full of personal, hilarious, ridiculous and moving stories about what it was like to grow up knowing you were destined for something bigger. So Joel, you grew up in Borkham Hills before your family moved to Perth, where you spent the majority of your childhood. Tell us about your family and what it was like to grow up in the Creasy household. Well... Growing up in the Creasy household is what I imagine growing up in the Kardashian household is like. My mum is my my kind of second manager, my mumager. She's my Kris Jenner and um, everyone had a skill and everyone was performing. So sitting at the dinner party, uh, dinner table, or a dinner party was even better, but uh, every night at, at the dinner table was um, was tough. You really had to bring your own and uh, if you wanted to be heard and, and put on a show. But uh, as an entertainer, I love that because my parents were both entertainers, um, both actors and models and singers that it was just kind of, it was in the, it was in the Creasy family blood. And so they supported you the whole way through? Yes. Most comedians say um, that, you know, their parents didn't want them to do stand up or they said, you know, should you have a backup option or, or is this really what you want to be doing? Why are you doing stand up? I had none of that. I said to my parents, oh, I'm entering a stand-up comedy competition. And they're like, okay, cool, when? We'll come. We'll bring some friends. So my first uh, my first stand-up comedy gig was in the Raw Comedy Competition in Perth at the Charles Hotel in North Perth, which is a really dodgy pub. And because I was underage, my parents had to sign me in, which is not very rock and roll. And um, and then they decided to, not only was that not there was the pressure of having you know them and three hundred people there they decided to be, bring twenty of their mates along and have a night of it and they got really drunk and had a wild night out and luckily I got through to the next round so it was even more of a celebration. Um, you also talk about in the book some very supportive teachers and friends. Yes. Um, tell me a little bit about your friends while you were growing up. Well, I had my best mate Ashley who lived um, two doors down and we were friends from I think three. And, uh, and she was absolutely divine. And her older brother was Heath Ledger. And, um, and so I always, I, I knew him growing up and was lucky to see his rise to fame from, from doing little guest spots at home and away all the way through to Batman and winning an Oscar. And, uh, it really inspired me because I thought, well, if he can, if he can do this, a little boy from Perth, uh, and crack it in Hollywood, well then so can I. And I mean, we've gone different part down different paths. He won an Oscar, and I go on reality TV and panel shows and 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 talk about how fat celebrities are. But you know, you know, each to their own. You got to have your own style. And so, I I reckon lots of kids grow up wanting to be famous. Yes, but 
to be a comedian is quite specific. And when you read your book, it is not an easy road. No. What, what made you move towards comedy rather than just acting? Well, finding fame through comedy, I think, is the hardest because of the arts, we sort of considered the lowest, like, you know, actors and rock stars are up there. And then comedians, we're pretty much the bottom of the pack. We're down there with contortionists and we're below clowns because Cirque du Soleil has made clowns seem really cool and it. But um, now, uh, no, standard comedians, we are bottom of the pile. So um, I wanted to be a really serious actor. I went to a a theatre school and then quickly realised that there aren't many roles going for the young blonde boy with the lisp and the limp wrist. So I went into stand-up comedy and gave that a crack and, and I've stuck with it and luckily it's gone quite well. In the back of my mind, I always sort of knew stand-up comedy was going to be for me because because comedy has always been my superpower. It's been my get-out-of-jail-free card. If I if I delivered homework late, I knew if I made the teacher laugh, I'd be fine. Or I knew if I'd done something wrong, if I just sort of if I just sort of added a bit of comedy to the situation, it would get me through. I want you to read a little bit to me from the book. Sure. This part fe- featuring Ashley and Daniel. So this is a story about uh, my best friend Ashley. I knew my entire life, and um, and our other dear primary school friend Daniel. And we used to play tennis on the quadrangle every lunchtime. That was that was the in thing that week. We went. We had many different things we'd play on, on it, it, during lunchtime. We did animorphs one week. We did Xena, <laughs> which was another one of my favourites. But this one time, uh, this one week, we decided tennis was the was the hot thing that week. And Ashley and I were queuing up for our turn to play, and our friend. Daniel was standing behind um, Ashley and he was uh, very, let's say, enthusiastic, which is another way of saying a little bit annoying. And he was he was hitting Ashley on the head with his tennis racket just because he had so much energy. I don't know what his mum was feeding him for lunch. It went on for about two minutes before Ashley lost it, completely and utterly lost it. Daniel, stop that. Daniel, please stop that. Daniel, stop it. And then at the top of her lungs, 10-year-old Ashley snapped. Daniel, would you just fuck off? I was stepping up to play, but I stopped immediately. I couldn't believe it. Ashley had just said that word. Everybody stopped, in fact. The whole school stopped. The tennis ball stopped midair. Kids playing on the playground stopped. People running on the oval stopped. Teachers in the staff room stopped drinking their Nescafe Blend 43 and wallowing in their self-loathing. It felt like an eternity passed. All eyes went from Ashley to Daniel, where those words had definitely had their desired effect. Daniel had stopped hitting her and stood, mouth open, staring at her. And I will never forget his response. It was perfect. It was equal parts the campest, lamest and freaking coolest thing I have ever seen. He timed it to perfection. It was it it was as if a spotlight appeared on Daniel from nowhere. He was sent to stage. He shut he shut his mouth slowly and composed himself, a glimmer appearing in his eye. Then he said, Okay, Ashley, I will fuck off then and proceeded to air hump his way the entire 400 metres to the canteen, buy himself a calippo and lie in the sun for the rest of lunchtime. Incidentally, I was given a calippo and a... Incidentally, I was given a calippo and a domestic flight recently. I I don't think calippo... 
I don't think calippo licking techniques are something you want to experience from a group of strangers in a confined space. However, that said, to the gentleman in 23C, impressive work. That day, Ashley taught me the world-stopping power of a well-chosen swear word. But more importantly, Daniel taught me that no matter the situation, no matter the time of day, no matter who was around, and no matter how old you are, there is always an opportunity to steal the spotlight. And if worse comes to worst and a joke doesn't land, a bout of air humping will always get a laugh. So that's what I'm doing right now with this book, Daniel, stealing the spotlight back all these years later. This is my story now. I love that. And I love that through the book, there's the, all these anecdotes which have almost helped you and your comedy develop. It's it's amazing. These moments in your childhood that seem to have really impacted how you deliver your comedy. Absolutely. I've pieced all these little things together over the years. And thank goodness for people like Ashley and Daniel. Although that said, I'm sure I would have met other people who, and, and, and it would have given my comedy another another shape. But yeah, I've always loved that story about Daniel and I can remember it as if it was yesterday. Your journey to comedy has been filled with highs and lows. Yes. What are some of the defining moments? Um, I remember, you know, I was, I write in the book, I was chased out of the town of Colac in Victoria, beautiful place to see in the rear view mirror of your car. And, um, and that was, uh, that was an intense experience, but that guy, that really actually, um, helped boost my career because, you know, that made national news. And I, of course, then went back with a documentary film crew. And um, and that was only, what, three or four years ago that you went back? I only went back, yeah, three or four years ago with a, with Reese Nicholson, a dear friend of mine. When and they were shouting, you yeah, know, get yeah, out of the town. The crazy homophobic stuff. And it was these 17-year-old kids. And people go, oh, they were just kids. I'm like, have you seen a 17-year-old boy? That's a fully grown man. And 30 of them, I would not have stood a chance. I was actually with Ashley at the time. Um, so, yeah, that was scary. But that, that was a that was both a high and a low. Of course, working with Joan Rivers and being discovered with her, I, I say is the turning point in my career and, um, and a massive high. Uh, Tell then, us a bit about opening for Joan Rivers. Oh, it was incredible. It was just, you know, she's the reason I do stand up and I used to watch her on YouTube every night before bed or one night I stayed up all night watching clips of Joan Rivers on talk shows um, uh, all night and then went straight to school the next day. And and it's crazy that uh, this, you know, 14, 15-year-old boy identified with this, you know, 74-year-old uh, Jewish-American comedian uh, and I just absolutely adored her. So getting the phone call to ask if I wanted to open for her was, you know, I almost hung up thinking someone was playing a practical joke on me. And she was she was incredible and beautiful and funny and humble and so down to earth. And it really taught me a lot about about um, humility um, and just, uh, just really funny. And never spoke to me like I was, she was the master talking to an apprentice. She spoke to me like, an, like a peer. She asked me for some advice. And, um, yeah, it was, it was so special and, um, and, and also, uh, one thing I remember is in her documentary, A Piece of Work, which is so amazing if you haven't seen it, um, she talks. She, she says that nobody has ever called her beautiful. And it kills me now that I never told her that because I remember thinking at the time, and yeah, she's had lots of work, and people go on about her being this monster. It's like, mm, sorry, she was a multimillionaire. The work she had was bloody good. And I remember being struck the first time I saw her by how beautiful she is. So I really wish I'd said something. Hmm. Yeah. Well, it's a presence too, right? Oh, her presence. She was tiny, but she would just fill a room and, and you're in, you knew you were in the presence of greatness. 
So let's talk a little bit in the book. Mm. We talk about how you came out as a young gay boy, but it sort of feels like it's a nothing thing nowadays. Totally. And it felt like a nothing thing at the time. I mean, I graduated school in 2007 um, where none of the boys really had a problem with it. It was more the teachers, the older generation. So I kind of really wanted to write this book and write that just to show people that it doesn't have to be a nightmare story. And I give the advice, whatever advice I can give. And I always tell people to take my advice with a grain of salt. But, um, but I want people to know that it doesn't have to be a nightmare. You, you know, it it is becoming the norm. And um, I don't have any horror stories in the book being chased out of Colac aside, but, you know, that's if you choose to be a stand-up comedian, putting yourself on the, in the spotlight like that. But that can be a completely normal, uh, fine experience. Although at the same time, I don't want people to read this book who are going through hell and um, and be and be disappointed. But, yeah, it can, it can just be as, um, as matter-of-fact, oh, I'm gay, and that's... That's what it was for me. Do you think that comedy enables us to talk more freely about gender? Absolutely. And I'm very lucky in that, you know, comedy is essentially therapy that people pay me for. So who knows? Maybe I might have had more of a a struggle or more of an internal struggle had I not had the outlet I'm so lucky to have, which is stand-up comedy. Because I I essentially get up on stage every night and and go through my problems and without realising. So uh, perhaps if I didn't have comedy, who knows what would have happened. I could be a real just a real asshole. <laughs> so this is my story about what happened with Colac and um, and my return trip after being chased out of town in about 2011. This was a few years later. You'd think I was done with Colac at that point, never to return. But at the end of 2013, I went back with one of my best friends, a brilliant comedian called Reese Nicholson, who is also gay. He says. But apart from being engaged to a man, I am yet to see proof. And a film crew to make an anti-homophobia documentary because after all the press about what had happened to me, Colac had earned the reputation of the most homophobic town in Australia. I actually think it was on Colac's Wikipedia entry for a while, but some local councillor probably frantically edits it off every time it goes up. The film crew we went back to Colac with was headed by the brilliant Tom Raw and Nell Minchin, sister of Tim Minchin and Katie Minchin, my tour manager in that regional rural town with the radio station. They had won a grant to fund the idea and were filming the doco for ABC2. I'm not sure how they specifically pitched it, but I'm guessing let's put these homos in serious danger would probably have gotten it across the line. The doco was called Gay Crashes. It really is one of the pieces of work I am most proud of and it was amazing to experience it with such a fabulous person as Reese. We were in Colac filming for a week and Reese and I did things like working at the local timber mill and the pub. Then at the end of the week, we put on a show having sold tickets on our rounds of the town's businesses. The test being, will the town be comfortable enough to buy a ticket to support and watch two gay comedians? It was interesting because nobody was really openly homophobic to us on camera, but it was also frustrating because people would drive down the street and shout out faggots or homos, and because it was such a small film crew, it was really hard to capture that stuff on camera. 
It takes a brave person to yell abuse at someone out of a car window and drive off. I'm sure they have huge penises and great jobs and really happy home lives. Other people we encountered, though, were on their best behaviour after an article appeared in the Colac Herald almost instructing locals not to fuck up while the cameras were around. We read that and thought, wow, what a way to brush the issue under the carpet. What happens when we're not around? One of the really shocking things that happened during my time there was that I spoke to Emma, who ran Dynamic and had been involved in organising the anti-homophobia event I'd been chased from. We had a coffee on camera and it was extremely uncomfortable. She told me that as a result of my actions in the media, the group had lost its funding and had disbanded. Even worse, she told me it really hadn't been good for the LGBTIQ kids in the town, resulting in further bullying. It broke my heart that my actions had had a carry-on effect for those kids because I really didn't want to make their lives any harder than they already were. Wow, I love that part of the book. Yeah, it was full on. It is full on. Mm. Um, but the book is also very funny and has some really hilarious parts Oh, in thank it. goodness. Like, thank goodness. <laughs> well, you do have a lot of misadventures. Like, tell us about that time that you got or almost got bogged in Vegas. Oh, yes. I was with my ex-boyfriend, um, who I write quite a bit about, and I'm surprised he let us write about him in the book. Um, and, uh, yeah, we were we went to, went to Vegas to see the... We were invited to the opening night of Kinky Boots in Vegas, um, which was very exciting and very celebratory. So, of course, I was in. And Jeffrey, being a performer, also had a gig to get back to the next night in LA. And that trip can, you, you can do in three hours, and, and we... We drove LA to Vegas in three hours. It was such a breeze. And then we got back and um, on our way back about 15 minutes out of Vegas, we hit standstill, you know, like the Walking Dead style, bumper to bumper traffic. So I thought I'd found a back road. And I said, hang on, I found a back road. Let's, I'd Googled and I said, let's take this. And it wasn't a back road. There's no back road Vegas to LA or everybody would know about it. Anyway, I convinced him. And we decided to take this back road and there was a no through through road sign. I was like, no, nah, just go around it, just go around it. And so we flew down this back road for about half an hour laughing, being like, oh my God, I can't believe these thousands of other cars are going to be stuck there for hours until about, we were on that road for about half an hour. And then we hit about 30 cars parked all over the road. And we were like, crap, what is going on? And we looked and the road had ended and there was this huge ditch about 30 metres long and 20 metres deep until the road had started again. And yeah, that's why there was a no through road sign. And um, at first I was like, hmm, if we get a run up, we could probably jump it (laughs) in a hire car. And then we looked down the side of the mountain and there were people taking matters into their own hands and literally so desperate to get home, driving down the side of this mountain through like a little kind of swamp and up the other side. But a few cars had gotten bogged in the swamp. And I was like, oh my God, we're not going to be able to do this. We're on like a $2 a day hire car. And then I saw you know, a beacon of hope. I saw two lesbians with their Jeep and their dog. And I was like, right, I'm going to play the gay card. And I was like, hey, sisters. And, um, <laughs> and you know, lesbians and gays, we live very separate lives until we need to come together. And then we're like Captain Planet with our powers combined. And I went over and spoke to them and they said, right, we're going to go down the side of the mountain. And the key is to get a really good run up. You'll fly through the swamp and up the other side. And so we followed the lesbians and, um, and uh, we were following them down. And then Uh, people seeing what we were doing decided to follow us. So there was now like a convoy of us. So the lesbians go first, they fly through the swamp, up the other side, off they go. 
the difference being they were in a, a four-wheel drive, very fancy car. Um, we were in like this really cheap Ford Focus. And so we go in under under them. We're screaming. We've got Taylor Swift blaring. I'm like screaming at the top of my lungs. My boyfriend's driving. The car is shaking. Every light is beeping at us. I've never seen these lights light up in a car before. And I'm like, we're going to get bogged. We're going to get bogged. We're going to get bogged. Somehow we made it through. Had there been another, you know, second, we would have been stuck. And um, we got up, up through, up to the other side. And what is funny is we turned around and the car behind us had gotten bogged, thus blocking the path <laughs> and the 20 cars behind us. So only the gays got through. And off we went down the road thinking we've made it. This is great. Off we go. Didn't see the lesbians again. And then about another 20 minutes later, I see this car in the distance and I turned to my boyfriend and I said, does that look like an army tank to you? And then turns out it was an army tank followed by another. And my first thought was, oh, the lesbians have gone home and, you know, grabbed their other car to help everyone. And um, and then followed by about 40 other army tanks. And I was like, oh, my God, what is happening? And I quickly Googled and I realised the back road I'd found was an army training road. <laughs> and I was like, what do we do? What do we do? And my boyfriend said, what do we do? And I said, just blend in. <laughs> In your, Ford, like, in your Ford Focus. I know, in our little blue sparkly blue Ford Focus, <laughs> both of us in like singlets and like Le Specs sunnies. And anyway, I don't know, the, the army the vehicles just ignored us and we went on and and, and we made our home to, to LA just in time for his gig. Thank God, because I would have been furious if we'd missed it because we could have stayed in Vegas and seen Celine. That's brilliant. Brilliant story. Thank you. <laughs> well done making it through. I know, so pleased. <laughs> Suck it, heteros. Um. What was it like to write the book? Because that's very oh different God, to it was so hard. kind of delivering things that you write and then deliver on stage, right? Well, yeah, because my stories on stage are just dinner party stories. So that's like, say that story about um, Colac or that story about um, Las Vegas, uh, that would happen to me. And then, you know, like when you go to something happens, funny happens to you during the day and then that night you see some friends or you go out for a drink or you go to a dinner party and you go, oh, you'll never believe what happened to me that day. That's how I do my stand-up, but I just do six of them in a row. So I, I literally dot point six points. Oh, I think these stories are funny, and off I go and do my stand-up. And then one might might not work, so I just shift in another story. That's how I write my stand-up, which is also quite unusual. I know most stand-ups actually write, write it out word for word. But um, writing the book, you actually have to write it out word for word. And at times it was infuriating because I, I go, oh, my God, I know these stories in my head. I can't believe I'm having to write it out. But ultimately it was so rewarding. Because I made a joke earlier, and it's so morbid, but I was like, if I die tomorrow, at least I'm documented somewhere. <laughs> That's true. But also you don't get that instant reaction. I mean, some of those stories you have used in stand-up, so totally. you know they're going to work, but yeah. others are, are quite personal and more serious too. Well, I think people would be shocked. There's actually that not that many stories from my stand-up mm. in the book, or there's the serious side of stories, because I'm one of those people that I cannot be sincere in person for a second. So um, in the book, you know, I tell the more you know sad side of things or serious side of things as well as the funny but I can't I just can't do that on stage I can't I can't leave a second of airtime that's not got a laugh in it mm. what's next what's the one big thing that you want to do next well domination um, oh is that all Pardon? <laughs> yeah, that all? that's all. I just want to be the new Oprah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I was invited on a tour of Afghanistan um, and Iraq um, to entertain the troops, um, but I couldn't actually because I'm on this book tour. So I would like to find another time to do that because I think I'd get some great material. Um, <laughs> yeah, material. Material, I know, and hot soldiers. Um, and well, obviously write book part two. And we'll give it a few years. Yeah, for sure. Maybe 
seven months. And then uh, I've got to give it a few years because it takes me a while to write them. And then... I don't know. I've, I've been doing a lot of acting lately. I've just, uh, I'm on the TV show uh, Sisters, which is on Channel 10 at the moment, um, which is their new um, artsy uh, drama. And I'm also just finished filming a stint in Neighbours because I'll take That's any fun. gig. Yeah, that it was actually really, really enjoyable. Soap opera acting is so fun because nothing you do is ever too much. And um, so I'm doing that and then, um, and that airs next year. Excellent. And then I have a new stand-up too, a stunning called Blonde Bombshell. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. You're so welcome. What a thrill. And everyone should go out and buy Thirsty Confessions of a Fame Whore. It's an excellent read. Please do. It's uh, it's, it's full of juice. It is. Very juicy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.